welcome to the Pair of Dinks podcast. This is Jake, and today you have an episode with me, and it's going to be a follow-up to episode 72, Who the Hell is Jake? Um, if you haven't listened to that episode where it ends is just after I had completed some blood work with the doctor, and we were starting in on figuring out my diagnosis with cancer, and... Now we're going to be in chapter two. The blood work showed an alarming type of inflammation in my body. The doctor decided to send me for a chest x-ray and sent me back to the lab. A day or two later, he called with the results. The x-ray showed a large void in the center of my chest. He canceled the ultrasound and scheduled me for a CT scan instead. His office made the arrangements and booked the appointment for April 21st, 2020 at the Peace Arch Hospital in White Rock, B.C. I took a few deep breaths and turned my gaze in the complete opposite direction of my right arm. A picture on the wall absorbed all of my focused attention and became the most interesting thing in the world. There was a quick, sharp pinch below my right elbow, and I felt the warm tugging at the adhesive tape on my forearm. My elbow started to throb. Sorry, the nurse said. I looked down at my elbow and her glove was stuck to the medical tape she used to secure the IV line on my arm. Every time she pulled at the stuck glove, it pulled at the tape, which pulled at the needle. In all my years of placing IVs, I never once got my gloves stuck on the tape. That's because I didn't wear gloves when I placed winged infusion sets on actors and background performers for TV shows and movies. Heck, there's not even a needle in those things on set. One of my many responsibilities was to rip out the needles of at least 50 of those bastards the day before we filmed the big hospital scene. And every show always has a big hospital scene. This was no movie scene. This was real life, and the IV was set so the nurse could inject a contrast dye into my body before the CT scan. I started to feel warm, like when you're a kid and you pee the bed in the middle of the night. I looked down at my hips. Nope, no dark patches. I'm not peeing. It must be the side effect the nurse mentioned. I welcomed this side effect. The room was air-conditioned, and I had stripped all my clothes in exchange for a thin cotton hospital gown. There was a team of people behind a big glass window and a control panel. The nurse could speak to me through a microphone and a little speaker that sat on top of the CT machine. She instructed me to lie still and hold my breath when the hold your breath symbol illuminates on the machine. A ceiling panel above me had been replaced with a backlit picture of a tropical beach, white sand, a casual palm tree, and a rich blue cloudless sky hanging above the tropical sea. I wondered if they have ceiling tiles of glacier rivers and estuaries with banks lined by evergreen forests in tropical hospitals. In less than 10 minutes, the scan is completed. The nurse removed the IV and advised me to drink a liter of water to flush the dye from my kidneys. I ask if I will pee funny colors. She laughed as if she had heard that question twice this morning and says no. Some crappy dye if you ask me, I thought to myself. The doctor called me the next day about the results of the CT scan. He was very concerned about lymphoma. The large void was a lymph node in my chest, between the heart and bronchial tubes, and it was swollen to about 9 centimeters. Another lymph node, at the base of my neck, along my left clavicle, was also swollen to about 4.5 centimeters. The doctor said he starts to get concerned about lymph nodes when they swell to 2 centimeters. I had no idea what a lymph node or lymphoma was. My doctor told me he will start a referral to BC Cancer, and his office would also schedule a biopsy on a lymph node that was swelling at the base of my neck. He said he didn't know too much about the details of treatment, but it sometimes involves chemotherapy or radiation, and that's when my mind said, oh fuck, that's what lymphoma is. 
You know how in the movies when a character receives bad news on the phone and the camera zooms in and everything around them goes super quiet? That's how the phone call went once the doctor mentioned chemotherapy. I felt the world go quiet. Everything around me screeched to slow motion or ceased to exist. This must be how I die, I thought. My body felt so uncomfortable. I was unable to sleep soundly through the constant night sweats that drenched my bedding, my heartbeat racing, and my blood pressure holding steady in a zone 2 hypertension state. I hung up the phone and sat with this new information for a minute. The mixture of feelings that overtook my body was unprecedented and left me feeling an urge to cry angrily and smash my apartments to bits. An unexpected thought came to mind as I remembered a friend from high school. We had thrown in track and field and played guitars together. He was a teddy bear of a guy, imposing when he needed to knock someone over, but a real sensitive soul with a love for people and making them laugh. A few years before the pandemic, he posted on his Instagram story, It's better this way, and ended his life. I imagined that moment for him. I wondered if he felt as I did, exhausted, alone, existing in a consciousness of failures and half-hearted attempts. I thought to myself, you could do that too. You have the perfect excuse now. You could keep this a secret and just slip away to eternity. Life in the movie world had beaten the life out of me. The work schedule demands your entire waking existence with little regard for your need to sleep. My social life was non-existent, and because I didn't want to date anyone in the industry, I had to resign to the life of an eccentric bachelor. There would be no one to miss me. Everyone on a film set is replaceable within a day. If Luke Perry could pass away and Riverdale could keep filming, then the world would continue on without me and I would find peace. After a minute of sitting in numbness, I called my parents. It's lymphoma, I told my mom. She ran to my dad in the garage and told him. I heard him respond to her with a loud, what? My dad is also Canadian, and because he is the only one of my parents with a Canadian passport, he got in the car the next morning and drove for nine hours from Spokane, Washington to Langley, BC. Road trips are a favorite pastime for my dad. He's driven across North America five or more times in his lifetime, and he's also been to all 50 states, five Canadian provinces, and we're both tied at 14 countries. His love for travel was deeply embedded in my DNA. Riverdale had been the second TV show that I worked on as a full-time employee. It was also my first full-time job as an IATSE 891 member, and the experience nearly made me quit the whole industry. I shouldn't have signed on, but the idea of making $40,000 for five months of work was too tempting for my 26-year-old broke ass. The show was expected to do well, but until that was proven, there was little money or production time devoted to the show. Working on the first season of any TV show can be compared to working at a tech startup company. There's a lot of hope and big ideas, but no way to implement all of them. And you should sleep in your office if that's what it takes to get the best show made. I left the show before the final episode was filmed because the prop master gave me a choice to either leave or be fired. The lack of sleep and intense filming schedule had taken its toll on me, and it came across as my attitude toward work became more and more resentful. I really wanted to get fired and go home, but that would have fucked the team over, and I was only feeling burned out, not vindictive. After my last day of filming in January 2017, I hopped in my car and drove straight to my parents' home in Bellingham, Washington. I transferred my suitcase from my trunk to the trunk of a 2005 Volkswagen Jetta, and just before midnight, my dad and I hit the road to drive from Bellingham, Washington, all the way across the United States to North Carolina. My brother lived there, and he had purchased the Jetta from our mechanic over the Christmas holiday, and dad and I volunteered to drive it over to him since he didn't have the time to do it himself. 
We share a love for adventure and travel, and this was an opportunity for us to travel across the country and have another visit with my brother, who we didn't get to see very much anymore. Dad was so close to retirement that he could taste it, but the last days on the job were damn near eating him alive. He had two careers that he bounced between for all the years I had been alive. In his day job, he worked for the Whatcom County Parks and Recreation Department and served as a range master for the Plantation Rifle Range, one of a few 300-yard high-power rifle ranges in northwest Washington. He loved the job and despised the politics of county bureaucrats, most of whom lived up to the definition of bureaucrat as someone concerned with procedural correctness at the expense of people's needs. Master Sergeant Warren was my dad's other 20-year career. He had enlisted in the U.S. Army at age 18 to escape the nasty divorce his mother and stepfather were embroiled in. It turned out to be a good move, as he met many great men and women who helped him build a comfortable life. For the time I have known him, he always served in a reserve capacity with the Army, and for most of my life he worked at the U.S. Army Logistics Operations Center, or the LOC, in the basement of the Pentagon, just outside of Washington, D.C., he loved to lord his Pentagon connections over the piney county bureaucrats whenever, whenever they got on his case about some procedural detail that he overlooked. He had retired from a decorated army career in 2012 and just needed to make it through his last year with the county parks before he could live a life of leisure. This opportunity to drop everything and drive across the country came at a perfect time for both my dad and I. He was neck deep in stress from work and the only thing that was keeping him from quitting was the swanky retirement deal that he would start collecting next year. We set off into the dark January night as a blast of cold air from the Arctic Circle hit the West Coast. By the time we hit Seattle, two hours south of Bellingham, there were snowflakes drifting through the night sky. A few hours later, we were on the snow-covered roads of Snoqualmie Pass, trying to keep our tiny tires inside of the fresh tracks the semi-trucks would break for us. The Jetta was not equipped for this kind of driving, but that was no matter to us. It added to the excitement of the trip. Sometime between 3 to 4 a.m., we arrived in Ellensburg, Washington, and stopped off at Perkins Restaurant and Bakery to enjoy a breakfast while the snowplows cleared more roadway for us. I was dead-ass tired by this point and had been awake for nearly 24 hours. I asked my dad if he would continue driving so I could sleep. I passed out under a pile of blankets and woke up at the Columbia River crossing on Highway 82 between Washington and Oregon State. We merged onto Interstate 84 and drove past a couple of police cars that pulled off to help a jackknife semi-truck and trailer that slid off the on-ramp. The temperatures were well below freezing, and while the little Jetta was moving along fine, it was a sobering reminder that one little patch of ice could send us sliding into oblivion. We arrived at Dead Man's Pass a few miles outside of Pendleton. This would be the second of many mountain passes to navigate until we could reach the flats of Kansas. An electronic message board over the highway read, Traction tires advised. We took a shot of Pepto-Bismol, ignored the sign, and pushed onward into Idaho. One month earlier, I bought my first professional camera, a Canon 5D Mark II. It was quite old, but lightly used, and perfect for capturing adventure. I brought it along for the trip and decided I would capture the whole journey from the perspective of the passenger seat. We didn't have much time to stop and enjoy the sights, and I liked the idea of putting a perspective to my photography. It also gave me an appreciation for the world as we passed through. A landscape that was usually grass-covered plains with giant passes through hills of red rock had been covered with a thick blanket of snow. I felt like we were driving across the planet Hoth from the Star Wars movies, with little utility buildings that looked like outposts for the rebel forces. The last time we drove across the country, I was 14 years old, and we had gone through the southern United States in the summer. We took our time and spent five weeks driving from Virginia to Florida 
over to California before turning north to our home in Washington. During any long-distance drive through the mountain passes, I imagine the life of the settlers who rode on wagons and horses through this terrain. How amazed would they be if they could see us today? A journey that would have taken them months, maybe even years, now could be completed in five sleepless days. Our route took us through Washington, into Oregon, down into part of Idaho, to our first sleep in Salt Lake City, Utah, at Fort Douglas. One of the perks of my dad's military service is he could get us cheap lodging on military bases. It's not fancy, and the bed may not be comfortable, but if you're just looking for a few hours of shut-eye, it fits the budget. We cut north out of Salt Lake City in the morning and followed Interstate 80 to Wyoming. In Cheyenne, we would drop back down to our next stop outside of Denver, Colorado. The sky was bright and clear, which caused the snow to shimmer and shine against the bright blue backdrop. The red rock would break through the snow, and on one stretch of highway, we saw the infamous Bleeding Hills phenomenon. As the snow melts, it turns the red rock into a slurry that begins to bleed out of the snow-covered hills. It looks as if the devil himself came down with an AK-47 and shot up the hill. Gun violence is always top of mind when I return to the United States. I become hyper-aware of all entrances and exits to a building, and I closely watch anyone who reaches for their pockets. I imagine it's what being in a war zone is like, constantly on alert because someone might pull a gun and do something stupid. During lunch at Little America, a fuel and grill station in Wyoming, my dad struck up a conversation about football with a couple of guys at the table next to us. Since I have no interest in professional sports, I decided to eavesdrop on a man talking into his phone about a time that he shot another man for trespassing on his property. He's lucky I only shot him in the leg. I could have killed him. It's my right, he spat into the phone. He was dressed in gray barbecue stained sweatpants with some old torn up boots that he left untied at the top. Above the sweatpants, he wore a stained white t-shirt with a stained flannel shirt left unbuttoned. In between defending his freedom, he took large bites of fried chicken and macaroni and washed it all down with giant gulps of a 32-ounce cup of sweet tea. He droned on and on about how it's legal to discharge a firearm outside of the city limits and other nuances and language that people use to argue in court. Donald Trump had just been inaugurated a few days before this trip, and I was highly aware that we would be deep in the land of Republican voters for the rest of our journey. I started to feel very out of place in the United States, and in this moment I accepted a truth I had been running from. My birth country and I no longer had anything in common except for the childhood I shared with it. I never understood why there was no public health care, but if you join the military, you basically get access to great public health care services. At age 26, I was kicked off my parents' health insurance plan. President Obama had passed a modest health care act labeled Obamacare by the pundits, but it was not accepted by a large number of physicians. The administrative paperwork that came with trying to build a government caused more paperwork and payment delays for physicians who were already drowning in medical school debts. Private insurance was available, but it would cost nearly $800 a month for self-employed people like myself, and it barely covered any serious medical conditions. If I got sick or hurt, I would still have to pay tens of thousands of dollars of medical bills. The real cherry on top was when Congress voted to fine people for not having health insurance. While doing my taxes one year, my accountant forgot to check the box that said I didn't live in the United States. The software generated a $2,000 fine for me being uninsured. My jaw almost fell off. I couldn't believe this was how the wealthiest democracy decided to treat its citizens. The tension was palpable in the air. People seemed to be constantly threatened by your very existence and unsure of their own future, but still willing to use their rights to bear arms as an assurance of their survival. When viewed through my 26-year-old eyes, my home country felt like a foreign, war-torn land that I had visited in a nightmare. 
Between this lack of healthcare and the rise in citizen-on-citizen violence, I made up my mind that I would not return to live in the United States. Had it always been this way, and I was simply too young and preoccupied to see it? Or had something changed? We passed the Continental Divide in Wyoming and made our way down the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains to the Great Plains. Horses roamed wide open fields, and behind them was a ranch consisting of a few simple barns. The buildings looked old, as if they had been there since the times of the gold rush. The roof was bright red, and the rest of the structure was worn and weathered by ferocious winds from the Rocky Mountains. I turned my focus from the field of horses beside the road to a team of semi-trucks behind us. Things had changed. As we entered the outskirts of Denver, the car's anti-lock brake system began to kick aggressively. Traffic was gridlocked, and even though we were creeping along at five miles an hour, it was nearly impossible to bring the car to a full and complete stop. The brake pedal would kick back at each stomp as the car crept along the icy highway. Once I got the car to fully stop, I opened the door and touched the road. It was covered with at least an inch of smooth, thick ice. This was bad. At the next exit was a hotel, and we carefully navigated the little Jetta across the highway in search of safety. We did not plan to stop here, but the worst of the weather had finally caught up with us as the cold Arctic winds converged with heavy precipitation over Denver. Through most of my childhood and teenage years, I felt distant from my father. My mother had been a stay-at-home mom until I learned to drive and she went back to school. Dad was always working, so we never had many deep conversations. Most of our time together was spent learning how to fix cars and repair homes. We didn't talk about personal things while doing this work because we were too busy swearing at rusted bolts and stripped screws. This trip was an opportunity to get to know my dad better. We had not traveled together for many years, and through our journey, I was beginning to see the traits he had passed along to me. We love adventure. We appreciate the joy of being on the road and meeting strangers in strange places. We make ourselves at home wherever we are in the world because the world is our home. And yet, we are also very different people at the same time. My father's upbringing had been vastly different than mine. His parents divorced when he was about a year old, and his mother fled back to the United States after vowing to his biological father that he would never see his son again. His stepfather provided well for the family, but him and my father never got along very well. At the age of 14, my father accidentally discovered that he was adopted after finding some paperwork that was left out on the counter. Whenever we did talk about his past, my dad always used his stories to tell us that he wanted a better life for my brother and I. He wanted us to feel supported, encouraged, and empowered to chase whatever we wanted to do. When I was one year old, my father contracted Guillain-Barre syndrome and nearly died. It's a rare disorder where the body's immune system begins to attack the nervous system. Our nerves have an insulated coating on them called myelin, which functions in the same way that our plastic and rubber coatings protect the copper wires that run through the homes. When this protective coating is removed, the electricity escapes before it reaches its destination, and in the human body, this leads to paralysis because muscles no longer receive any signals to contract or relax. If left untreated, you die. Thankfully, my father received treatment, but it was a rocky time for my family. He became fully paralyzed and had a close brush with death during treatment. During recovery, he had to learn to walk and talk all over again in his early 30s, and during the whole ordeal, my mother had to arrange for friends and family to look after me as a one-year-old infant while also looking after my father's health. When I got my driver's license, my mother decided to go back to college and become a nurse. I called her a lot during the diagnosis phase of my cancer because she could offer insights into what the doctors might be thinking, and she could explain in greater detail what was going on in my body. After I received the lymphoma diagnosis from my doctor, I really wanted my mom to be with me. 
However, since my father had retired in 2018 and my mom was still a practicing registered nurse, it was harder for her to get away. In addition to that, the Canadian government had closed the border to all non-essential entry for foreigners, and because my mother didn't have a Canadian passport, she would be denied entry into the country. 36 hours after the doctor called to say I have lymphoma, my father was at my doorstep. Well, figuratively on my doorstep. He was required by law to quarantine in a nearby hotel for 14 days before the government of Canada deemed him safe to the public. I spent those 14 days gathering meals and snacks for my dad in between long bouts of rest and meditation. The idea that cancer was growing inside of me, and cell by cell, stealing my ability to live a long life, was beginning to eat away at my emotional stability. Before this time, if ever an unpleasant emotion would arise, my reaction was to busy myself and run away from the overwhelming emotions. I didn't know how to feel unpleasant emotions. I thought life was supposed to feel good, always. And if it didn't, then it must mean something is wrong with you. After his quarantine was lifted, he moved into my little one-bedroom apartment and slept on the couch, and we spent almost every waking minute together. One afternoon, we sat on the back porch and cried together after he asked me how I was feeling about my diagnosis. It was the first time I cried in front of him as an adult, and the first time I expressed my fear of dying to another human being. It was also the first time he told me about how close he came to death during his treatment for Guillain-Barre. He told me about a time that he felt the heavy darkness of death wash over him during a procedure he went through when I was just a babe. Breathing became my way to handle these strong emotional waves that would crash into the crevices of my mind. Deep breaths from the bottom of the abdomen that filled my lungs with fresh air before I exhaled them with a force that I imagined to be expelling the cancer from my chest. I wanted it out of me. I wanted to live. I felt the cool breeze of the mountains enter the bottom of my lungs and radiate life force out to the tips of my fingers and toes. In these long afternoon meditation sessions, I began to visualize my healing. I started with a circle of particles, which was how I imagined the tumor in my chest to look. It was more colorful in my imagination than it would be if you were to cut it out and look at it with your eyes, and it moved like water falling into a sinkhole. The colorful particles would appear to collapse into themselves and slide toward the dark center of the circle where they would disappear. In my mind, I would shrink this circle. I would begin to see it grow smaller and smaller and the particles would move faster and faster toward the center like a shrinking black hole. Inhale, see the edge of the circle. Exhale, apply even pressure to the edge of the circle and shrink it. I would repeat this until an alarm reminded me to bring dinner to my father. On the morning of May 7th, a nurse called me into an operating room. This time I was allowed to keep my shorts on underneath the hospital gown. The room looked like a beige version of Goldfinger's elaborate laser table. A large satellite dish looking contraption loomed over the stainless steel table in the center of the room. Just behind the table sat an ultrasound machine that was much fancier than what we used on our movie sets. I sat on the table, casually inspecting it for any arm and leg restraints as the nurse begins to explain to me the biopsy procedure. It was at this point I learned we will not be doing a fine needle biopsy, which was a surprise to me. They would be taking a much larger sample of the swollen lymph node in my neck. My armpits became very spicy. Instead of telling me how a tiny needle would be inserted into my neck, the nurse began to describe the procedure using words like incision and loud stapler by your ear and expect bruising. She explained the benefit of this type of biopsy. It would produce a more detailed sample to better diagnose my condition. Dope! I like precision. Let's do this. I laid down on the table and the radiologist entered. 
He ordered the nurse around using some medical jargon, and soon there was a cold feeling on my shoulder as he placed the jelly-covered ultrasound wand above the swollen lymph node near my collarbone. We'll go in here, he said to the nurse. Now, you're going to feel a bit of a pinch as I inject the freeze, okay? He said to me. He reached over me to grab the needle off of the tray to my right. Shit, that's a big needle, I thought. However, its bark was louder than its bite. I looked up at the ultrasound screen. The nurse adjusted the wand location and the screen settings for the radiologist, and within moments, I saw the fat bastard for the first time. I thought of the joyful, loving feelings that parents have when they see an ultrasound of their child in the womb for the first time. My feelings were the exact opposite. I wanted to kill what I saw on the screen, snatch the scalpel off the tray, cut it from my body, and watch it slowly suffocate in a pool of blood on the cold beige floor. But I couldn't resist the obvious joke. So is it a boy or a girl? I asked. The nurse laughed quietly, and the radiologist hit a button on his device. I saw something pointy shoot out into the swollen lymph node on the screen and quickly retreat. He must get that joke a lot. Also, that numbing stuff worked incredibly well. I felt nothing. I was mesmerized by the screen as he took more samples. I tried to mentally connect what was happening on the screen to what was happening along my clavicle, but they felt so separate. After the procedure, the nurse put a big old bandage on the wound, and I sat up on the steel table. I looked down at the ultrasound wand. It had a plastic bag covering it that was coated in jelly and blood. Smart. A plastic cover. Less washing. We never did that on set. I changed into my clothes and headed out to meet my father. The biopsy result would not change my future. It would simply announce which type of cancer cells are growing in me, and how brutal the fight may be. During our night in Denver, my father slipped on the ice in front of the hotel and landed straight on his head. It was a loud crack that filled the silent night, and I thought our trip was over. Better call the ambulance and hope he doesn't bleed to death from a cracked skull. I thought of another time that my father almost died. On September 11th, 2001, I woke up to go to school like it was any other day. My mother was on the phone, sitting on her knees with her face 12 inches from the TV screen. This was unusual because we didn't watch TV often and certainly didn't talk on the phone to people before 8 a.m. I remember seeing buildings with smoke billowing out of them on the screen, and when my mom saw me, she quickly whisked me away from the TV. My dad was just a few days into his two weeks of work at the Pentagon. He would spend two weeks in the spring and two weeks in the fall attending to his army job. My mom explained that a plane had crashed into the Pentagon, and we had no idea if my father was alive. We didn't go to school that day, and my mom's friends showed up to make us breakfast and keep us company while we waited and hoped for a phone call from my father. That afternoon, we got a quick call from my dad, who borrowed someone's satellite phone so he could tell us he's alive and who would call us back later. That morning, he was at a PowerPoint class in a room that was less than a football field away from where the plane hit the building. In 2011, he was awarded the Army Gold Star for helping his whole class escape the fire and smoke-filled section of the building. It was a moment that forever changed our family. My dad was moved from reserve duty to active duty, and we moved to Washington, D.C. for three years during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. I loved our time in D.C. We moved there just after my 11th birthday, and being tossed into the multicultural melting pot of D.C. was the perfect thing for my young mind. My parents took advantage of this time to travel us up and down the eastern United States, all the way from Maine to Florida, and exposed us to damn near every major historical place on the East Coast. We saw Plymouth Rock where the Mayflower and the other boats first landed. We went to nearly every major Civil War battlefield and even saw a piece of Abraham Lincoln's skull at the Walter Reed Army Hospital. We toured the Capitol building and saw every monument and government building in D.C. We went to Maine to have lobster on the beach and check off my dad's 50th U.S. state. 
We went to Florida and spent a week at all the amusement parks in Orlando during spring break, where I also learned about flashing boobs for beads. Our time in D.C. was incredibly formative for me, and our journey back showed me how the rest of, the, how the rest of America, the non-military side of the country, has to fight for survival. My father and I woke up from our night in Denver and watched the morning news while eating our complimentary breakfast at the hotel. The news showed scenes that we would later witness, flipped over cars and trucks littered the highway as we continued our journey to South Carolina. Our next stop was St. Louis, Missouri, where my mother's sister lived. On her guest bed was a pillow that was embroidered with the phrase, life was meant for good friends and great adventure. The message resonated deep within me. I had many great adventures through my 20s, except I felt that I had no good friends that I shared these adventures with. During our trip across the country, I felt that I was beginning to form a friendship with my father as we talked about our lives, the struggles that we felt with work, and the desire to live a life of freedom. When we woke up from our rest in St. Louis, we spent the day being shown around town by my aunt, and when the evening came, we decided to, do to drive straight through the night to North Carolina to see my brother. We drove in two-hour shifts, and as the sun began to rise, we made our way to Fort Bragg, where my brother lived in the military barracks. When my father joined the army, he spent many years at Fort Bragg. As we drove in, he pointed to places and showed me the huge towers that he jumped off of when he was learning to parachute. We passed other buildings, warehouses, and parade fields that my dad told stories of until we finally made it to where my brother was living. The car was covered in ice and mud, and we promised to get it cleaned up after we got breakfast and a nap. We went to breakfast at the mess hall, or as the army likes to call it, the USA JFK SWCS dining facility. The military loves to turn everything into long-winded and patriotic acronyms. However, I did not enjoy this complex naming system and prefer instead to enjoy the simple sights and sounds of the ocean. My brother had to depart for a week-long training mission, and we asked if we could borrow the car to complete our sea-to-sea -sea journey by dipping our feet in the Atlantic Ocean at Carolina Beach. The trip to the beach was the first time we drove in positive temperatures, and while it was certainly not beach season, it was much warmer than everywhere else we had been. I was born in February, under the Pisces star sign, as was my brother, and I have always felt close to home near the ocean. When I was a toddler, my dad was a park ranger at Simiamu Park, a little strip of sand and rock that sits on the border of southern Canada and Blaine, Washington. We frequently visited my dad's friend and coworker Ben, who managed the county park and boat launch at Point Roberts, which is a strange spot of land that hangs below the arbitrary drawings of the border at the 49th parallel. To get there, you either have to take a boat or drive out of the U.S., around part of Canada, and then drop back into the U.S. through the Point Roberts border crossing. In our house, my parents had framed photos of my brother and I throwing rocks in the ocean and snuggling up all cute-like with my dad and mom against the driftwood on the beach at Point Roberts. When I was first learning to talk, I would point out to the water and yell, Oto! Oto! Because that's what I called the ocean at that age. All my life I lived within a short drive of the ocean, and getting to dip my feet back into the Atlantic was a reminder that, to me that no matter where I am in the world, if I can find an ocean, I am connected to everything. After my biopsy, we had to wait a couple of weeks for the medical system to process my referral, find me an oncologist, and schedule our first meeting. Because public parks were the only public spaces we could go enjoy, my dad and I made several trips down to Crescent Beach in White Rock, British Columbia. I found it ironic that we would be walking these sandy beaches that look directly at Point Roberts in Simiamu, where my father and I first got to know each other. When my dad was a park ranger, he earned the nickname Digger, 
because he loved to show people how to dig up clams from the beach for dinner. We laughed as we wandered the beach and got hit by the jets of water that clams will shoot out of the sand when they feel threatened by the weight of your step. Many a time we got a jet of water straight up the shorts and we screeched and laughed like children as we wandered the beach. After our visit to Carolina Beach, my dad and I returned the car to my brother's parking stall and left the keys on his bedside table. From there, we caught a train out of Fayetteville, North Carolina, that would take us to New York City, where my dad would play tourist, and I was going to do some filming with my high school friend, Mike. After a few days in New York, we caught a flight back to Seattle and patted ourselves on the back for safely delivering my brother a reliable vehicle. My brother is two years younger than me, and we have been close for most of my life. There were years we didn't get along, as there are with most siblings, but I will never forget the words my mother once told me. One day, you will only have each other. After I called my parents to tell them I had lymphoma, I had to call my brother. He went to school for firefighting and became a volunteer firefighter EMT with the county fire department. After a few years of fire service, he followed in my father's footsteps and joined the military in his early 20s. I was always afraid of losing him to some military conflict, and I worried what I would do if I ever lost him. Now I had to call him and tell him that I might be leaving this life early. There was a long pause of silence after I told him about my diagnosis. In my early 20s, I began to lose my hair, and when I was diagnosed, I had been razor shaving my head for at least five years. Well, if you have to go through chemo, at least you already lost your hair, I remember him saying. We had a good laugh as the tears streamed down my cheeks. Losing my hair was the least of my concerns at the time, and I appreciated that my brother helped me find the humor in my situation. After that conversation, I decided my cancer would be a positive experience for me. If I was to die, then I would die and be at peace. But if I was to live, then goddammit, I was going to live. It felt strange to laugh at the face of El Cancer, and it also felt appropriate to accept whatever outcome. If death was going to take me, why not have some fun with the last days of my life? Thank you for listening to the Pair of Dinks podcast. That's the end of this episode. If you have any comments or anything you want to share with us, send it to pairofdinks at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, please check out the links in the description below to either donate or buy some merch. I hope that you glean something useful for your life from this conversation, and we look forward to hearing from you and wish you a great day. Bye.